We're beginning today a new series entitled Fellowship, the Tie that Binds. And I took that phrase from the hymn that we're going to sing at the close of today's message. But our text of Scripture in Acts chapter 2 that we read today brings before us the happenings in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, a Jewish festival celebrating Passover, when Peter stood and preached to the Jews assembled there from 15 different nations. They think the swelling of population in Jerusalem on these festivals probably approximated a million people. That's a lot of people crowding into the ancient city of Jerusalem for this festival. But they were Jews primarily from every part of the globe. And you can look there in the previous chapter and you can see the list of of the nations represented. The Spirit of God, who had come upon the apostles and the 120 believers assembled for prayer, also fell on this crowd that day as Peter preached on Christ as their Messiah and more importantly as their spiritual Savior. Peter gave a clear call to people to repent of their sin. Look at verses 38 and following. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Acts 2, verse 38 through 40. The result is given in verse 41. Those who accepted his message, Peter's message, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. God's saving grace came upon these people with power. They were persuaded by the good news of the gospel. They were convicted of their sin. Verse 37 says, cut to the heart. That's just a nice way of saying they were deeply, deeply convicted by Peter's preaching. And they pleaded with Peter and the other apostles to tell them how to recoup from their terrible sinfulness of actually being guilty of murdering the Lord of glory, and how they could become the recipients of God's forgiveness and mercy. Can we be forgiven? That's what they wanted to know. This is something terrible that we have been involved in. Peter, the apostles, tell us how can we be forgiven? Is there any forgiveness? Is there any mercy for us? Or are we just doomed? Well, Peter had accused them, you see, of putting to death the man of God's own choosing. Verse 23, look at that. Not only so, but this man was none other than the Lord and Messiah, their Lord and their Messiah. Verse 36, God raised him to life and set him in the heavenlies. Verse 33, at the right hand of God. Oh no, you mean he's alive? Yes, and he's pouring out his spirit. Verse 33, on all whom God will call Verse 39, but he's at the place of authority. He's at the place of judge. 
Now the called were evident by their acceptance of Peter's message, by their repentance of their sin, by their belief in Jesus as Messiah and Savior, and finally by their baptism and union with the Jerusalem church. Which would require, of course, a change from Judaism to becoming followers of the way, the Jesus way. That's the name that originally was used of Christians, Acts 9, verse 2. And before some years later, when uh, such believers were called Christians first time at Antioch, Acts 11, verse 26. But they had to leave Judaism and become followers of the Jesus way in order to be forgiven. And so we see that those that listened to Peter and, and acted upon what they had heard, they did forsake their sin and they were baptized. And it was about, wow, 3,000 people that day. I heard an exposition one time say, well, you know, they couldn't have baptized by immersion. It must have been pouring or sprinkling because you can't get 3,000 people in and out of the Jordan River in a day. Well, that's humanistic uh, misinterpretation. God can do anything. And it was the apostles, uh, 12 of them, Matthias being put in the place of Judas, I'm sure 12 apostles baptizing in the river could indeed accomplish 3,000 by immersion. The point being that they saw the necessity, leave Judaism, become followers of the Jesus way. Now, the Jerusalem church was the first formalized Christian church. That's not to say there weren't any believers prior to that. What are you, what are you going to do with the 120 that were gathered? What are you going to do with the apostles? What are you going to do with all of the people that heard of the messages of Christ and the gospel accounts and so forth and believed and so forth? Well, were they just hanging out there somewhere? No, they were incorporated into the body of Christ. But the first formalized church is the Jerusalem church. And this is where all the apostles ministered originally, including Peter, Acts 5, verse 2. This is where the first church discipline was executed against two believers who lied to God, Acts chapter 4. This is where the first deacons were chosen and assigned their responsibilities, Acts 5. This is where the first martyr of the church, Stephen, lost his life, Acts 7. This church was the first to experience organized persecution, Acts 8, through Saul. This is the first church with missionary outreach, Acts 9, verse 33 and following. This is where the first clarification of salvation by grace alone, apart from the works of the law, that is circumcision, occurred, Acts 15. So what I'm saying here is that a lot of firsts happened in the Jerusalem church. This is explosive. And this is why it is wise to revisit Luke's account, who wrote the book of Acts, to see just how this very large church conducted itself in the early days of its formulation. And what we see in verse 42 is that four primary activities Luke records that this church devoted itself to. Acts 2, verse 42. Number one, they were first and foremost devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. We have 
the apostles' teaching codified or written down in the New Testament Scriptures. We have the Old Testament Scriptures, which is the writings of the patriarchs, the prophets, and and the, the poetry writers and so forth, David, Solomon, and so on. And then in the New Testament, we have the teachings of the apostles and the friends of the apostles like Luke and Mark codified for us in the age of grace. But in the days of this church, Jerusalem, they heard orally, like you're hearing me this morning, they heard orally the from the mouths of the apostles the teaching of the apostles, chapter 8, verse 1. Secondly, this church was devoted to fellowship. And that's going to be our theme for this morning. Thirdly, to the breaking of bread. Now, not meals, but the Lord's ordinance of bread and wine at His table. Though, though, verse 46 indicates that they did meet as well in the homes to eat together. So, they carried on this kind of formal social, informal socialization. And fourthly and finally, they were devoted to prayer. Now again, not private individual prayer in their homes. Everybody can do that. But they were devoted to public corporate prayer in assembly as they came together for that purpose. Whether they had a separate prayer meeting, we don't know. But whenever they gathered together to hear the apostles' teaching, there was certainly a time for prayer. Now, in this new study, which I am calling Fellowship, the Tie that Binds, I want to concentrate on item number two. They were devoted to fellowship. First of all, I want to talk about this outbreak of fellowship. And under that, you'll notice that I'm firstly saying that we today have a problem with muddy water in reference to defining this. What we mean by fellowship is a far cry from God's meaning of fellowship. Most churches, ours included, have what we call fellowship hall. That's not an evil designation at all, but it tends to muddy the water as to the nature of true fellowship. Fellowship hall, for us as well as for others, is a place designated for food and conversation. We have our dinners there. Uh, We entertain guest speakers there. We may have a game night or some other activity for the young people there. We call all of this fellowship, but what is really occurring is socialization. While there is conversation around the table as we eat together, the chatter is most likely to center around things like um, work. Uh, Where'd you go on your vacation this past summer? Boy, haven't we had a lot of rain lately? The weather? Oh, yeah. How are you doing uh, with that uh, surgery that you had? Health issues? We might express worries or concerns that we have with regard to the economy, with regard to politics, with regard to our own families, and so on. Now, don't get me wrong. These have their place in our lives. 
And we do need to talk to others of like faith about such things. But strictly speaking, none of this is fellowship from a biblical definition. Some in Christian circles have sensed that socialization is not enough. And so they've tried to breathe new meaning into the invitation. Well, why don't we get together on such and such a night and have some fellowship? Now this group means by this, let's gather at such and such a place, usually a house, a home, for prayer and Bible study. And they're calling that fellowship. Or we will have a time of testimony on how God is working in each other's lives. These are very important spiritual endeavors, once again. And they can become a real part of biblical fellowship, but as they stand, they still fall short of God's definition. Our Pilgrim's Progress study on Sunday evenings is an amalgamation of food, bring figure foods, and Bible study. It is a learning time, not simply a share a meal time. Food for the soul, yes, but also food for the body. Jesus did the same thing, by the way. Taught the people, then fed them fish and bread. Same kind of thing. But this too falls short of biblical fellowship. You say, boy, you're really getting this new, you're starting to really narrow this down. I want you to think of Luke's analysis in our text. His point is that the early Christians of the Jerusalem church, notice the word, devoted themselves to fellowship. At best, we have a communion dinner, what? A communion meal, once every two months if we stick to the schedule. We have Bible studies on Wednesday evening and Sunday evening. Some may have an ongoing study midweek, something like that, at somebody's home. We have special events like Hobo Junction tonight at the Clayton's. But would any of these meet Luke's use of the word devoted to? Think about it. I think that even without knowing the Greek word behind the text, the English word by itself, devoted to, says volumes about Christian fellowship which would not apply to our simple concepts. Ask yourself, are we devoted to eating meals together with each other? Devoted. Now, I didn't ask you if you are devoted to eating. <laughs> We're all devoted to eating. But are we devoted to eating meals together? Well, you answer that for yourself. Are we devoted to weekly Bible studies? Devoted now. That's where I'm putting the emphasis. Are we devoted to personal testimonies of God's working in our lives? I think the answer is no. Much of our behavior in these things is hit and miss. It's a kind of, well... I'll be there if I can. But if I can't make it, then just, just kind of go on without me. That's okay. It kind of um, ruins the whole concept of the word devoted, doesn't it? Now, the Greek word for devoted, and I didn't put that one on the board, 
But the Greek word for devoted, is a, it's a combined word. Pros, you want to put this down. P-R-O-S, cartero. Pro, meaning towards. So that's the first part of the word. The proskitero. If you're pro-life in the abortion debate... It means that you are for the life of the child being developed in the mother's womb and you are for that as to being pro-choice which denies the child's rights. Cartero is the Greek word meaning to be strong. So you put them together, I am for being strong in whatever you're talking about. To endure, to be constantly diligent, to be steadfast. Hence the NIV translation. To be devoted to. I'm strong for this. I'm not hit and miss about this. I'm not casual about this. I'm strong for this. Uh, and by the way, the King James Version words it this way. They, they didn't know how to put the two words together uh, and make one word, like the NIV uses the word devoted, but they use two words to say the same thing, and it's pretty strong. They continued steadfast. That's very colorful. They continued steadfast. They were devoted to this thing called fellowship. And so all of these definitions refer to a mindset that is intense, not casual, single-eyed, not distracted, committed, not equivocal, constant, constant, not sporadic. This being the case, guess what? We fail in our own, in our own <laughs> definition of fellowship. Because we are not intense, we're not focused, we're not committed, we're not constant or steady when it comes to times of socialization, Bible studies, corporate prayer, and the like. I think this should bother us. But does it? We ought to be convicted about our failures in our own weak definition of fellowship because if we do not measure up to our own watered-down standard of fellowship, how shall we fare when God's definition is understood? God's standard is always higher than ours, more righteous than ours, impeccably holy, accurately reflective of His own nature, and who can handle that? Whoa, yeah. God calls on us to be honest with ourselves and with His Word on this matter of fellowship. It is vitally important. It is not peripheral. It's not out here. It is central to the community of the church. So secondly, let's try to unmuddy the water a little bit by looking at the biblical definition of fellowship. And I've written the Greek word or transliteration thereof 
on our whiteboard this morning. Koinonia is translated in the English Bibles participation, partnership, communion, sharing, and of course the word we have in our text, fellowship. If you look at that, if you look at this list, the two main meanings of fellowship, this word koinonia means to share together in the sense of a common connection and secondly, to share with by distribution of our resources, whether spiritual or physical, for others that are in need. The two terms Jerry Bridges uses in his books, Crisis of Comfort, are relationship and partnership. So I'm going to kind of use those terms, steal them from Jerry. I'm sure he won't mind. Biblical fellowship is firstly a spiritual relationship or union that we have with Jesus Christ and consequently with every believer. It's firstly a relationship. This is what John referred to when we read it in this morning's uh, meditation text. We proclaim to you that we what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us, John writes, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, verse 3. More on that next week, but for now I want you to observe that John and the other apostles had fellowship with God the Father and with His Son. It's this word. It's the same word that's in our text. Goinonia. Now this is not cake and ice cream, is it? On Sunday evening after the service. They didn't have cake and ice cream with God the Father and God the Son. Whatever this is, it's something different from our definition. Now, this is ongoing, this is binding, this is an ever-present relationship initiated in a pinpoint of time for them, but going on thereafter. It had a beginning, but it has no end. It was initiated by God. It is maintained by the power and the will of God. It pulls people into a relationship, not simply into an activity. A relationship. So when Luke tells us that these early believers were devoted to fellowship, he is accentuating the truth that their lives were committed to sharing together in the very life of God through the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. This relationship between became theirs by faith in Jesus Christ. It had little to do with joining the church. If you think of the church as an organization, it had everything to do with unity in the Spirit with God who is Spirit. They became members of God's family first and foremost, and as a consequence, they became partners with one another in like faith. This is the church viewed 
not as an organization, but as a living organism, something alive, something breathing, something that is uh, ongoing in terms of life. In our Peter study, First Peter, he says, you also like living stones. We, we, when, we, when we studied that, we thought, my, that's a strange ex- expression. None of us think of stones as living, do we? You go out there, you're raking in your garden, you try to get rid of the stones so you can plant your crops or whatever. But you don't think of a stone as something like you would think of a stalk of corn or a head of lettuce or any of that. You don't think of it as living, but he's talking about a house, a spiritual house that's being built for God. And so he says, we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him, it's a person, you see, we're not talking about granite here, but the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. 1 Peter 2, verse 5 through 8. Now clearly, Peter is demonstrating that people who are living stones in God's house are those who have believed in His Son Jesus and are fastened to Him as their spiritual foundation. There is the basis, this is the basis for their fellowship with God. Let me say it very plainly. Apart from Jesus, there's no fellowship with God. Apart from Him, there's no fellowship. Apart from Jesus, there's no relationship with God. Instead, Jesus becomes a stumble stone. People trip over Him. They fall because of Him. They fall because they reject Him, both theologically and personally. They seek another way to eternal life, though none exists. For them, no relationship is established beyond that of judge and wayward subject. And that's always been there. So we could say it this way, that relationship has ne- never changed with the unbeliever. It's always judge with rebel subject. Notice the words that Peter uses of these people in this text. Do not believe. They do not believe. Reject. They stumble. They fall. They disobey. Those are all the words he uses to describe them. It's not the kind of relationship in verse 5, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Every charge, brethren, that we have in the Scripture concerning separation from sin and the pursuit of holiness is a reminder of the relationship or fellowship that we as believers have with God. A relationship that must be maintained for it to qualify as 
fellowship. Again, Peter says, but just as He who called you is holy, so you be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. First Peter 1, 15-17. You're in a relationship, you have to live in that relationship. And in order for a relationship to be established and maintained with God, the old sinful relationship has to go. Paul worded it this way, What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship, koinonia, this word, can light have with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. What is he saying? He's cutting a line and he's saying, you know, you're either in fellowship with God and through Christ or you're in fellowship with the world and darkness, but you can't, you cannot have it both ways. The boss says to you, hey, Jake, some of the men are coming over from the design department on Monday evening. Why not drop by? We're going to watch a little bit of football, have a few beers, maybe throw a porn video on the DVD. Maybe you'd like to join us. Well, whatever that meeting with the men at work is called, it's not fellowship. And it can never be fellowship because as believers, our relationship with Christ has altered forever the relationship with our fellow workers. Peter put it this way, Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because He who has suffered in His body is done with sin. Now, not perfectly in this life, but that's our attitude, that's our posture, that's our goal, that's our striving. He goes on. As a result, because we're done with sin, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, Living in debauchery, loss, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. First Peter 4, the first three verses. He's saying our relationship is with God through Christ. And that radically alters or, or ends our fellowship with our pagan buddies. Now, if, if they can accept the new us, then some contact, some interaction may be permissible, but other things will not be permissible. Well, boss, <laughs> you know, I'd like to come over and watch football with the guys, but count me out if you're going to get drunk and watch porn. 
And there may be here an opportunity to speak to the boss of your new relationship with Christ and why you can no longer do those things. The principle is this. We are in fellowship with God and His people. And so, what agreement, asked Paul, is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You will be a son and daughter to me, says the Lord Almighty. And since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16 and following. See, It's a relationship. And because my relationship now is vertically connected with God through Christ, then on the horizontal level, I have to watch my interactions with people that are not in this relationship with God and with Christ. And if I am going to have horizontal relationships, it's going to be in the brotherhood of the church. So the first explanation for koinonia is that we are in a relationship. It speaks firstly of that. But secondly, koinonia is a partnership. The whole premise of a partnership is the understanding that some things cannot be done well alone and also that providence may move in our lives in such a way as to create surplus in some and dire need in others. And you know, I think that God does this deliberately to create interdependence. He does that. For example, when Paul was reasoning with the Corinthian church about the proposed offering being received for the suffering church in Jerusalem, listen to how he argues. He says, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. He's talking about the offering. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work. Finish it. So that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. According to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. Our desire, he's reading, I'm reading on, our desire is not that others might be 
relieved while you're hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. ESV says fairness. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need. So that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. And then, there will be fairness or equality. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 8 and following. Very practical things going on here. Church is suffering in Jerusalem. This is the very church we're reading about in Acts 2. But this is later on, historically. This is later on in the book of Acts. And in Corinthians, and so on. After Corinthians becomes a church, Corinth. Now, we ask the question, doesn't God have the ability to miraculously supply the money, or we could say it this way, the resources to feed, to clothe, to house the brethren of the Jerusalem church who had been displaced because of persecution? Well, we say, no doubt about it. Of course it could do that. But did he not teach, it is more blessed to give than to receive? Acts 20, verse 35. It's a principle of the Scripture. Our partnership with the needy affords us the opportunity to be blessed of God in ways that a stingy or covetous heart cannot be blessed. All of this on a very material level. My brother needs food, I have food, I share food. My brother needs clothes, I have clothes, I share my clothes. Housing, whatever the particular need. By the way, James picks up on this in his epistle and he says, if you see a brother without food or clothing or he's destitute and so on, and all you do, all you do is say, well, I'll pray for you, God bless you. Adios, amigos. James asked this very pointed question. What good is that? What good is that? You're passing out benedictions and he's shivering in the cold. It denies fellowship in this aspect of partnership. I'm in relationship with that brother but I'm also in partnership with that brother or sister. But consider as well, not only partnership in the physical level, but partnership in spiritual matters as well. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership, koinonia, it's this word, because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, verse 3 through 6. So what's he talking about? He's talking about a spiritual partnership. Paul came to them with the gospel and they said, okay, we're going to take the gospel and we're going to take it to other people. We're going to carry this torch some other location. And they did. Or again, when Paul and Barnabas appeared before the apostles in Jerusalem to advocate for Paul's acceptance and for Paul's ministry in the gospel. Remember, he was the first persecutor of the church. He was known as Saul of Tarsus. 
And so the apostles were a bit scared. Oh, we heard about him being converted, but I don't know about that. This guy kills people. Maybe he's just weaseling his way into the Christian community so he can get our rosters and find out who lives where, what, and so forth. So they were saying, I don't know about that. And you remember that Barnabas had to go to bat for Paul. And so here's what Paul says about this in the uh, book of Galatians. He says, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, this is in the Jerusalem church, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of koinonia, fellowship, when they recognized the grace given to me. What grace? He goes on. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they would go to the Jews. Galatians 2, verse 7 through 9. Far from causing a division in ministry, this decision formed a partnership in ministry with Peter and Paul, each carrying on half of the whole, but in unity with each other. Okay, Peter, you take your group and you're going to minister to the Jewish people. Paul, you take Barnabas and your group and you go minister to the Gentiles. And we're for you both. Right hand of fellowship. Partnership. And so koinonia, fellowship, has two main trunks. If you think of it, a tree coming out of the ground has two main trunks. It speaks of our relationship with God and with one another in Christ. That's one trunk. And second, it emphasizes partnership, whether physical or spiritual. And the distinction is this. The concept of relationship portrays believers in community as family. Whereas partnership portrays believers engaged in a common goal or endeavor. We could say it this way. Relatives. That's what we are. We're relatives. Don't we use the term brothers, sisters, Christ? We're relatives. Partners. That's what we do. That's what we do together. And the great goal of believers is to glorify God. And that great goal is achieved in two dimensions. We edify or build up believers in the body of Christ or in promoting the gospel to the lost and the uninformed. And secondly, we partner together to meet needs to accomplish the will of God for His people. Now, back to our text. How does it work out practically in terms of the first church's fellowship here? Well, number one, the Jerusalem church shared a unified devotion to the spiritual dynamics of communion or communication. 
When the church gathered under the tutorage of the apostles, think about this, they were soaking it in. This newly formed church, all these people, thousands of people, the apostles were their teachers, and they started to soak it in. Now keep in mind that everyone in this very large church were converted Jews whose entire ancestry had been well-educated in the Scriptures. In other words, they knew about God as Creator from the book of Genesis. They knew about the patriarchs and God's promise to Abraham. They knew about the miraculous exodus of Israel from Egypt. They knew about King David and his son Solomon and the rule of peace under Solomon. They knew about the prophecies of God concerning a coming Messiah. They knew about all of these things in the Scriptures. And yet, Paul explained to the Gentile church of Rome, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so... All Israel will be saved as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Romans 11, verse 25 and 26. What was Paul saying about Israel? He is saying this. They knew. They knew. But they didn't know. You say, well, that sounds odd. Yeah, well, hang in there. They knew in the sense that God taught them through His providence and through His prophets the will of God. They didn't know in the sense that they didn't believe God. The writer of Hebrews words it this way, Hebrews 4 verse 2. The message they heard, it was a great message, but the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. Hebrews 4.2 question comes, what value is the truth if when it is presented to you, you don't believe it? You don't act upon it? That was Israel. That was Israel. Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, they had that. They had their prophets. They had their teachers of the law. They had the rabbinical schools. Teaching, teaching, teaching. Giving information, giving information. They just didn't believe it. All unbelievers cannot act on it because they have a stone for a heart. And they have stubbornness for a will. God knew this about Israel, saying through the prophet Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart. You need a new heart. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart, you, from you, a, that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. I will move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. 
This is what happened in Acts chapter 2. Verse 38, promised them the Holy Spirit of discernment upon repentance and faith. Their heart of stone now beat with the life of God. I don't think the apostles were any better at teaching the Scripture than the prophets. But they had two things going for them. The apostles did. They had an audience now, Jews who understood, who had believing hearts. That's something new. And then as apostles, they had a grasp of Jesus as the one to whom all of the Old Testament prophets pointed. Bam! Suddenly, there was an explosion of interest and excitement as each person gained new insights to God and His grace. They listened. Whoa, their ears perked up. They learned. They shared this knowledge with each other. No wonder we read in verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. Wow! Yeah, this is, well, this is wonderful. For us as well, to experience true Christian fellowship, our communication with one another must move away from the trivial and the temporal and get back to the apostolic teaching. No more chit-chat about baseball and football and health issues and fashions and politics and so on. We need to get to the Scriptures which alone will enhance our knowledge of and our relationship with God our Savior. I had a call this past week from a pastor friend and He's preaching through First Peter and he got to First Peter 2.7, Christ the rejected stone. And it talks about Christ being both the capstone and the stumble stone. He says, well, how can he be the capstone and at the same time the stumble stone? And we talked, shared the truths from God's Word. That was fellowship in God, you see. We're talking about our relationship. We're talking about trying to understand Christ with whom we are united. How can this be both? How do we preach this to our people? How do we teach this? How do we employ this? How do we apply it? So firstly, the Jerusalem church worked on their relationship. Their relationship to God. And with one another. Secondly, the Jerusalem church not only devoted themselves to build their spiritual relationship through studying and sharing the gospel, they partnered with each other to share their material possessions. Look at verses 44 and following. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. What are they doing? They're partnering together. You might say they're getting their act together to meet a specific need. Now, this isn't a dinky little church like us. This is 3,000 plus. They were sharing what they have with God's family that didn't have. 
This is the second understanding of fellowship in practice. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 13, we actually are commanded, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. We normally interpret that, you know, I think we better have the Claytons over for dinner this sometime this week. That's not what it's saying. Claytons are eating, I hope. Right, Doug? <laughs> okay. It's not saying that. Share with God's people who are in need. Romans 12, verse 13. Paul even demonstrates that spiritual good will come from material sharing. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things and in all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God's going to give to you so you can do something good with it. That is written, He who has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplied seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. What's going on here? Their actions, their partnership is bringing glory to God, which is the whole idea of fellowship. We're in a relationship with God and our actions ought to glorify our God. He goes on, listen to this. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, Men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. And they will praise God for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 8 through 13. Now, our church has a benevolent fund to which all of us, if we're present at the Lord's table have an opportunity to contribute. But you know, oftentimes, and more so in the present day of economic downturn, need surpasses resources. Do you know that? Need surpasses resources. But here's the kicker. Giving money by itself to meet need is not necessarily fellowship. Because guess what? The world does the same thing. That Katrina hurricane and disaster that hit the South is still being contributed to by people in America. Now we got the East Coast that suffered from all that flooding from the hurricane that came up the coastline. And the world dips into its pockets and helps rebuild communities and helps open homes and shelters and so on to people. And they have absolutely no relationship with God or with the people that they help. So the world can give money and you give money. 
the sharing of our resources with others in the body of Christ is a demonstration that we are in relationship with one another so that if one member of the community suffers, we all suffer with him or her. That's relationship participation. Relationship partnership. You know, in a partnership, the principles involved understand that they will be sharing in both the income and the expenses. One partner does not pay all the bills while the other partner receives all the income. What kind of partnership is that? And so too with our partnership or fellowship in the church. We do not own our possessions. We have been taught by Christ that we are simply stewards of God's gifts. So we share the resources with missions abroad, do we not? That's why we have a mission fund. We share the resources with missions at home. That's why we are involved in such things as the SGBA programs and camp and, and all of that, which is an outreach. By the way, most of the campers that come to camp are unsaved. I might surprise you. That's a mission field. And we share with needy people in our own church. You say, well, <laughs> well, Pastor, I don't know any people in our church with need. You know why that's the case? It's due to the poor practice of biblical fellowship in the sense of relationship. You don't know because you're living your life in a pocket, in a box. You don't know left hand, right hand, what's going on. The solution is to keep your eyes and to keep your ears open, to love outside of the box. And outside of your filial family, yeah, just taking care of kids, you know, your own kids. Remember the family of God in whom you are vitally related. I'll say it again. We are relatives. And as relatives, we are partners together in the endeavors that we do. If you don't know Christ this morning, you're not a relative in the family of God. Say, well, I'm working on my own way to get to know God. You're not going to make it. You must come through Jesus Christ, His appointed way. Say, well, I heard what you said this morning, but I don't believe it. I know. I know. That's why you're not in the family. That's what Israel's problem was. They got the truth, heard the truth, preached the truth to them. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe it. They didn't act upon it. And they failed to enter into the promised land symbolic of the heavenly glories. You will not enter heaven's glories unless you've become related to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus put it this way, I alone am the way. I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, no man, no woman, no child, no one comes before the Father except you come through me. 
You don't come through me, you don't come. There's a gatekeeper there. You're expelled, you're barred, you're forbidden entry unless you come through the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord draw you. May you be among the called that we see in this text. The promise is to all whom God will call. If you hear his voice today, if you hear him chiding you because you've been sitting on the fence far too long, today's the day of salvation. Don't harden your heart like Israel did when they came right up to the promised land. They were right at the threshold. They were ready to go in and they said, oh, we aren't going to do it. There's giants in there. You want us to go in there? Uh-uh. And God said, well, you know, what about Egypt? What about me delivering you from all your problems down there? What about crossing the Red Sea? Can I get you across Jordan? Can I get you into the problem? We aren't going. We're going back to Egypt. And they fought against Moses and Aaron. And you that are unbelievers here this morning are fighting against the gospel of God. He's saying, here I am. Come to me. Believe in me. Come to Christ. And you say, I don't believe it. I got my... I'm doing my own little thing over here on the side and I think I'll make it. You won't make it because it's God's heaven and he, He's the gatekeeper as who comes and who goes. Our Father, what do we got for our heart today? Is it stone? If we're unbelievers, yes, it's stone. What do we have for a will? I pray that you'll break our hearts. No, don't break them. Remove them. Remove that heart of stone. Remove that stubborn will. Oh, God, stir us and draw us effectually into your kingdom. And if we know you and we are Christians and we have been thinking of fellowship as a chit-chat and uh, getting together for pie and ice cream and if we have thought of fellowship as uh, going to the uh, the baseball game or the football game uh, with a couple of brothers from the church, if if we have thought of that as fellowship and haven't understood that we're in relationship with one another, if we haven't shared our goods, if we haven't partnered in the sorrow and heartache of people, Lord, help us and convict us that uh, we don't know what fellowship is about. We need to get back to Acts 2, that we need to get back to this first church that devoted themselves to the relationship they had with one another and in very, very practical ways. One hurt, they all hurt. One was in need, they were all in. Rose to the occasion. In the chapters to come, we're going to see how, how they just did take care of this was the day before welfare, before the government stepped in and wrote you a check for doing nothing. This was the church of God's people caring for one another. We're getting to those dire days again when persecution will be on our shores as well as it is in Sudan and Kenya today, Somalia and other places where people are being killed for their faith. Lord, what will we do then may we get on line now with one another as we should. Teach us of your fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen.